I challenge you to a duel. Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the Movie Jewel podcast. My name is Peter and I am your host. On each episode of the Movie Jewel podcast we pick a subject based around films and then myself and my co-host each pick a movie that we think best fits that subject. The only rule being that you can't pick a film that has already been discussed on the podcast. This time around I'm going to be joined by Movie Jewelist Nicole to discuss our choices for best mindfuck movie. But before we get into that, just a few points of order for this episode. And first and foremost, just some thanks for reposts over on X uh, for the following people uh, on our last episode. And this time around, they go to the Shoot the Hostage podcast, Rice Stuff Reviews, Paul from Filmbusters, Jamie Russell, and Movie Drone podcast as well. Thank you very much, guys, uh, for your continued reposts and uh, retweets. It's very much appreciated. Just a reminder about how you can get in touch with us here at the Movie Jewel Podcast. You can follow us on social media, uh, on Facebook, on Instagram, uh, on Threads, and on X, where you can find us at Movie Jewel Pod. Uh, over on X on slash Twitter, you will also find the poll for this episode, so you can uh, put your vote in for which choice of movie you agree with. And you can contact us on email at moviejewelpodcast.com at gmail.com and if you're looking for a little bit of extra movie jewel bonus content uh, you can sign up to our patreon for just one dollar one pound a month uh, and you'll be entitled to listen to our movie jewelist roundtables in which i'm joined by all four of the movie jewelists uh, to discuss a certain topic for that month uh, we should be either around the time of this episode dropping or very close to uh, dropping our March roundtable in which we talk about who we consider to be the most consistent director uh, so check that out and also you can find more of the voices from the Movie Jewel podcast over at the so-called X-Files podcast a brand new podcast uh, that's been started by myself and Movie Jewelist Vanessa Cordner in which we break down some of our favourite episodes from the X-Files season by season and talk not just about uh, some of the Monster of the Week episodes but some of the mythology as a whole as well and it's a hell of a lot of fun so if you like the X-Files which is obviously the greatest TV show ever made then I would encourage you to head on over and check that out we are on Facebook with that uh, and you can find it on all good podcast hosting platforms and then finally just a few notes about this episode uh, there will be spoilers for both films and there will be strong language also so I hope you enjoy episode 26 of the Movie Jewel podcast. What the fuck? Okay, so welcome back to Nicole. Nicole, how are you today? Oh, not terrible, which is good enough. You know, <laughs> I was saying earlier uh, <laughs> off mic that my, my brain hurts after watching both of these movies yesterday. I waited much too long <laughs> before getting in my rewatches. I had seen both movies before. I've, I've actually talked about my movie on a previous podcast before. 
So I've seen that a couple of times, but not recently. And then I've seen your movie probably 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so this was a, a refresher and I, oh goodness, they're <laughs> they're challenging. They are challenging films. They certainly are. I mean, I, I I think I watched mine, and then about what two days later I watched yours, um, and I'm glad I watched them in that order. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we'll, we we'll get to that. How's the start of 2024 been for you? <laughs> um stressful <laughs> i have been planning a trip to ireland for primarily uh family reasons i'll say but also you know once that family business is taken care of in the first couple of days it will be my eldest sister and i uh jaunting around ireland for a few days and i'll be coming and meeting my movie dual co-hosts one of those days i'll be popping over to london mm, you will indeed yes i'm very excited yeah to actually be face to face for a change <laughs> not over zoom so, yeah, so it's been planning, 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 you know, get my new passport. It's mine. My old one expired. So I've got all the arrangements done, 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 finally. So. Any trips to the cinema? Trips to the cinema? We, I went to see Bottoms. Oh, yeah. One of my, the local art cinema was showing like the best of 2023 all right. Movies you may have missed. So we went to go see Bottoms, which is, I've heard it compared to like this generation's Heathers, and I don't think that's far off. All right. Okay. I have heard a lot of good stuff. I think it's just landed on Prime over here, um, but I've not got around to watching it yet. But I've heard good things. Yeah, it's it's more fun than Heathers, I would say. Heathers is <laughs> dark. And yes, it's darkly funny, but it's also mm. got a kind of grim undertone mm. to it. And Bottoms doesn't have that Very grimness. Right. So it's a little bit lighter, which is nice. But it's also uh, not one to watch with your parents or children. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I don't think uh, I'll be watching that with my children. We're, uh, we're into... We're into no, uh, your children are not old enough <laughs> We're we're well into uh, Doctor Who binge now, so excellent. My daughter's excellent. just got into uh, Doctor Who. She watched the three um, specials uh, over Christmas, mm. and she's obsessed, but couldn't understand why it was Christopher Eccleston. When we, I said, "Well, we're watching from the start of the reboot, the two thousand and three mm. reboot," so it was trying to explain the whole regeneration and and things like that to her but she's very happy now because we've got season four and uh donna's back in it and uh david tennant so she's happy excellent excellent but she has been really enjoying it she we watched uh obviously season three had blink which is the first one the weeping angels are in mm. and she absolutely loves that she's obsessed with it and she won't shut up about it oh yeah well it's it's terrifying and it's a very sticky mm. brain idea there's been so many i watch a lot of I watch a lot of gaming on YouTube and there's been mm -hmm. so many indie horror games made with that concept worked into them where you have to keep yes. looking at the yeah. opponent or it'll sneak up on you. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm glad you're I'm glad you're getting the kids into Doctor Who. You are going to 
backtrack and show them, you know, fourth doctor, best doctor, Tom Baker, right? Um, I hope so at some point, yes. I think it's, it's, it's a tough sell for a nine-year-old, I think, to go that far back. But <laughs> I, I think if I just sort of creep back gently, I think, because my... Growing up, I think, you know, it's like James Bond. You have your James Bond. or you... Yes, you have your doctor that you grew up with. And yeah. Sylvester McCoy was mine and right before, you know, it ended and, and, and they sort of stopped making them. Um, and I'd be interested to, to show us some of those because, I mean, his first season was pretty poor, but then it really picked up despite the sort of diminishing budget that it had. Mm-hmm. Um, it had some really interesting stories. So hopefully... When she's a little bit older, maybe when she's caught up, I'll sort of uh, suggest that we dip back into some of the old stuff. Yeah, maybe forgive some of the <laughs> some of the effects <laughs> in the older one. I watched one not that long ago from the Tom Baker era. There was some, you know, alien fungus or something on a space station, I think it was, and it was literally bubble wrap painted green. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It was very Absolutely. obviously bubble wrap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Love just like, it. oh, wow, that's... <sighs> well, and, and to sort of top, top off my triple bill of, of these two films, I also watched, because another podcast was covering it, I've not seen it, was a film called Threads, which was a British film about... I have um, not seen that. I've heard about nuclear it. Nuclear war. We had The Day After here in the US that was our big <laughs> nuclear war scare TV movie? Yeah. I would say it's it's bleaker than that. Mm. And that's saying something. I but believe it. I would thoroughly recommend it. It's it's a very good, very well-made film. And considering it was a BBC budget in, you know, early 80s, it's it looks pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, it's certainly not a nice watch at all. But enough about the bleak films we've been watching and more about the bleak films we've been watching for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, obviously, last time you were here, uh, we were discussing way, way back. Um, is it best comic book movie? Uh, <laughs> best comic book movie that wasn't DC or Marvel. Yes. That was it. Then it was my turn to pick. It was your turn to pick. So what subject did you pick for us this time? I chose favorite mind, let's say mind-bending movies for PG-13, uh, you know, 15 rating sake. Oh, I put, just put mindfucker. <laughs> <laughs> you put asterisks in it, you know. Mind, <laughs> mindfuck movies, ones that make your your brain do extra work. Yes, yes. I mean, did you? I mean, obviously, it sort of fell to me to pick first. But did did you have something in mind for this already, or was it something that you sort of thought was quite wide open? And uh... well, I mean, I had uh, what I had in mind was maybe a film that I I hadn't seen yet. Hmm. Maybe something that was surrealist that I had to think about. Um. I really enjoy movies that don't hold your hand, where you've mm-hmm. got to figure it out for yourself, and maybe some tricky things happen during the film, and you've got to put the pieces together yourself afterward. Yeah. Um, I think the I had wanted to see Holy Motors because I had heard that was sort of surrealist, and some people had trouble following it, and so I went and I saw that, and 
while it is, it's definitely surrealist, you know, heightened reality kind of thing. It's really just a, a series of vignettes. There's not much of a narrative Ooh. tying it together. Um, I, w- I would recommend it. I would recommend Holy Motors. But Yeah, I've heard a lot about it. It's, it's not a film that I've seen. I was I was secretly kind of hoping that you did, would go for that because I've been wanting to watch it. <laughs> well, you should still watch it. It's still it's still fun, and you can pause after every like little interaction. I think there's eleven or twelve little stories uh, built into it. But like I said, it I didn't have any trouble understanding what was going on. I wasn't sure why the things that were happening <laughs> were happening, but I could you know I understood what I was watching and and how that was happening. And I went online to find like lists of the best mind-bending movies and there's so many christopher nolan movies on it and i would say with the exception perhaps of tenet that i don't understand why they're on those lists i i was able to follow inception perfectly well out of the gate Mm -hmm. yeah and interstellar and tenet i think is just i think it's the script's fault that it's a little difficult to follow at times. I've still not seen Tenet. It's it's one of those that's sort of languishing on my on my watch list, but I know I'm gonna need to be in a particular frame of mind to be able to concentrate on it because I've heard that like as you say, you know, it's it's full of mind bendiness. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> so um yeah, so uh I ended up most of the ones on the short list were wibbly wobbly timey wimey Wibbly wobbly sort of films. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I mean, I've. This is probably the the closest I've got to recording an episode before I decided because for a long time I had films like Memento and mm. American Psycho. Uh, Jacob's Ladder was in in the mix as well, mm. um, and a couple of others as well. I think I just kept sort of pushing them out, but different ideas because there is so much and you know they're they're my kind of films like you you know i like i like films that that make you think and um films that are not necessarily just straight down the line yeah i'm really glad that you were looking at the what i consider to be sort of the other side of that which is just you're staring at the screen and thinking to yourself what is going on you know Mm. whereas i've minor we're all you know looking at the screen going when is going on? When? <laughs> what order is Ooh. this <laughs> happening in? It's, I think it's good to have these sort of wide open subjects where it's it's a bit more down to your interpretation and what you consider mind bending, really, and and, mm. and or you know mind fuckery. Yes, but it came to me quite late in the day. This one, um, and 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 was mainly down to could somebody mentioned it on a quick draw episode. Mark Reed from Creative Psychopaths picked it for one of his choices. Um, uh, I forget which one it was, but I decided to go for Eraserhead from nineteen seventy seven.
So, directed by David Lynch, uh, starring Jack Nance, Charlotte Stewart, Alan Joseph, Jean Bates, Jean Lang, uh, Judith Ann uh, Roberts, uh, and Lauren Neer. Uh, synopsis for Eraser Head. Henry Spencer tries to survive his industrial environment, his angry girlfriend, and the unbearable screams of his newly born mutant child. Now, if that's not a synopsis that really makes you want to watch a film, then I don't know what it is. <laughs> that, you know, I would I wouldn't need a trailer, and I wouldn't, you know, necessarily need to know anything else about this film. That would pique my interest just from that. <clears throat> so if you haven't seen a razor head, then obviously you need to go and watch it. Just based on that synopsis. This was my first um first sort of delve into the the back catalogue of David Lynch. Uh back when I was sort of fourteen, fifteen, I I got a television in my bedroom, um and channel four over here um used to show a lot of films at sort of ten o'clock on a Sunday evening. And they were usually quite interesting films. I saw things like From Dust Till Dawn, Angel Heart, Scum, films like that that were very sort of, or relatively sort of provocative and, you know, interesting and out there. And this was one of those films. This was one of the films of late night on a Sunday night. You know, I had no no idea what this film was or what it was about. No idea who David Lynch was. It was pre sort of internet days, so it's not like you could just look up and see to this. And it was a real eye opener. This is probably the first sort of um, film of its kind that I ever saw, and it just fascinated me. And it was a long time again before I watched it. Um, once I started getting a bit more, you know, into cinema, um, and then again, it was a long time before I watched it again just for this podcast. Um, but a little bit, bit of background about uh, Eraserhead. So it was made over six years. It was shot full sort of guerrilla style. Uh, they shot till they ran out of money. And then when they got more money, they started shooting again. Um, they even going to the, the lengths of going to, uh, uh, you know, where they, they were sort of developing film and editing films and things like that and grabbing scraps of film just to film that a little bit more. You know, while a lot of the, the people, you know, a lot of players, the cast and the crew, uh, were working at the the American Film Institute. Uh, it had a budget of of one hundred thousand, which I think even for nineteen seventy seven, it looks incredible. Absolutely. I know it's shot in sort of black and white. That's probably going to hide, you know, a little bit of that. But it's just it looks so amazing. The legendary Catherine E. Coulson was effectively a sort of assistant director. Best known for playing Log Lady in uh, Twin Peaks and being absolutely one of the most heartbreaking parts of uh, Twin Peaks The Return. She was actually married to Jack Nance. Um, and in an interview, she said the worst thing about the film was having to maintain Jack Nance's hair for six years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Combing it yeah. and ensuring that, uh, that the, there was consistency across those six years. Uh, Lynch has remained sort of reasonably sort of tight-lipped about the film um, and its inspiration, although obviously it's clearly sort of based on his own fear, fear and anxiety about fatherhood. It's quite clear. Um, yeah, I've, he's famously tight-lipped about a lot of his films, hmm. just absolutely refusing to explain, you know, when people ask him, what is this about? Yeah. Because he wants he wants the audience to 
put themselves into it to come up with their own interpretations of things. Mm. Yeah. And I think, but then, you know, I think this is out of all of his films. I mean, it's like, uh, there's a few that I haven't seen, like the straight story, which is probably his most sort of not quote unquote normal film. Um, but I would say it's probably his most relatable film, hmm. despite its dark nature and its sort of weird Im- imagery. Um, and it's it's very charming as well. I think, again, <laughs> despite all of that dark nature, it's, it's a really charming film. You know, there's some really horrible bits in it, obviously. Mm. Um, and actually, uh, Stanley Kubrick actually told him on the set of The Elephant Man that this is his favourite film. And uh, was even cited as an influence for Hans Rudi Giger, who did the original concept drawings for the Alien in Alien. I could I could see that, <laughs> especially the uh, the baby mm. that they created. That's another thing that it's very difficult to find the quote unquote real explanation for how they made that. There are a lot of rumors. Mm about what it is and what it's made from. Is it a, it's apparently a rabbit or something? Yeah, I had heard a horse fetus or a calf fetus, possibly. Mm. But it's, you know, I, I think it's just a puppet primarily, mm. but it may have, like, organic bits on it, certainly. It definitely yeah. looks organic. They succeeded in that 100%. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine, you know, skipping slough, well, quite a bit to the end. Um, but once, you know, it's sort of un, um, unbandaged, that that was maybe some kind of real parts of animal and things like that. Sure. But, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a fairly common practice, especially, you know, back in the day, um, you know, famously. Uh, the face hugger from Alien was bits of fish and meat and offal and stuff like that, so... Um, it's not a, an uncommon practice, although I did see a great review on Letterboxd. Um, I think the person gave it three and a half stars, and their only sort of wording in the review was, the baby looks like an AirPod, <laughs> <laughs> which is very true. Yeah, shape-wise, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, more accurately, AirPods look like the baby from Razorhead. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe that's where where they uh, drew <laughs> Which came first. from. Um, so what, what's, what's your sort of view on Eraserheads? You know, is it is it a film that you... You mentioned that you, you saw it about, what, 15 years ago? Something like that. I watched it one night after my kids were asleep by myself. In the dark, which is not how I would recommend watching this film, <laughs> unless you really want to creep yourself out. I had not, I don't know if I had not realized, I mean, I had heard about this movie, it's legendarily this artistic film, and so I wanted to see it, I was very curious about it, and I had not heard about or known that the sound design in this film is so unnerving yes. and disturbing and I think it's what gives it a very ominous tone mm. but because of that and because I saw it in the dark you know my, my first 
the time. I was just like, oh, you know, this is dark and weird, and I don't really need to see this again. But rewatching it yesterday, you realize that it's got a lot of really funny bits in it. Mm-hmm. Like, particularly Mary's dad. Uh, <laughs> yes. And it is just sunny friendliness oh. that seems completely out of place. Well, I mean, you know, it's interesting that you pick up the music there because, I mean, on the soundtrack even, um, because, I I mean, obviously when you're watching stuff for the podcast, you do tend to have that bit more of a critical eye or, you know, you're listening or you're, you're looking for for certain things. And something I had not picked up on is that that it's like this this sort of industrial sort of thrumming mm-hmm. that is just there through the whole film. It does not let up. It, you know, obviously it rises and falls at different points, but it's there constantly mm-hmm. through the film, even in the quiet moments. It's just there, and it just the, the whole of the soundtrack just pounds your senses and just. Yeah, even making me shudder now. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's it's just this, you know, you're just plopped into this world as well. This this sort of industrial post something world. You know, it's not mm-hmm. quite post apocalyptic, but it's you have this sort of feeling that you know society sort of crumbled to a certain degree and. It's a little bit sort of pre-Mad Max, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. And this great industrial landscape, you know, the, the railroads, factory buildings. And then you get this sort of, like you say, you know, this this, this little family home and this normal-ish sort of family to begin with, you know, the, Mary's, Mary's mum and dad and, and grandmother that just live in this little homestead in the middle of this sort of industrial wasteland. Mm-hmm. I um, love the bit, you know, sp- speaking of funny, the bit where Mary's mother helps Grandma to toss the salad. <laughs> Grandma's literally just sitting there unresponsive <laughs> the entire film. And she, like, puts the bowl in her lap and holds the spoon, you know, holds yeah. her hands over Grandma's hands on the spoons to toss the salad around, and Grandma's just sitting there. <laughs> yeah. Puffing on her cigarette that the mom has lit for her. I don't think she's even puffing on the cigarette. It's just slowly sort of sitting there burning, burning away. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and it, it's very heightened. Yes. Both the world and the way that people behave in it yeah. is heightened, which is, I mean, a heightened behavior is pretty normal for a David Lynch movie, uh, with the exception, perhaps, of The Straight Story and The Elephant Man. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's a classic sort of Lynch film. You know, we got we get no exposition, so we don't know. We're not told what's going on. You've got to sort of figure it out for yourself, which is always, you know, very sort of disconcerting when when it comes to to films and especially something like this, because we, you know, before we get into that industrial landscape, we are literally just where well, you get this sort of this this man who is just pulling levers. Um, then uh, Henry's sort of head appears, and there's these. I suppose they're meant to be sperm, and it's meant to be, um, you know, I'm assume my assumption is that this is the conception of the child, or this is his mm-hmm. memory of the conception of the child, or how Henry's sort of visualizing it. And and then before you know, 
we are then literally sort of birthed into the real world from this dream. You know, you have this sort of opening and, and the camera zooms towards it. And, you know, it's 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 all very on-the-nose sort of... Um... Is it on-the-nose, though? <laughs> well, I mean, I may, maybe once you've watched the film... I didn't get it the film, first time. <laughs> maybe once you've watched the film and you go back to it because, you know, that's once you sort of... Yeah, the, the second time it's much more clear that, you know, you're you're seeing this sort of visualization of a sperm and you see the man next to the window throw a lever and the sperm sort of shoots off into the darkness and that's <laughs> you know the conception but it, it's not a hundred percent clear you know who this man is mm-hmm. by the levers you know what's yeah. the significance of him sitting by a window one of which you know like some of the panes are broken mm-hmm. what's the significance of this sort of tiny planet i guess we're looking at yeah. is that the world inside Henry's head. You know, what's the significance of the the radiator and the lady in the radiator? <laughs> well, I, that's something I've definitely not figured out. I can't even begin to sort of interpret what that means. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's a one point, you know, near the beginning of the film as he's sort of walking home and... He steps in a puddle and then he puts his sock on the radiator. And so whether that's got something to do with it, I don't know. I mean, it could be a, I don't know. There's probably quite... And why does the lady in the radiator look like that? Yes. Yes. Why is she dressed like a little, like, 1950s housewife, but she has these growths on the sides of her face? Yeah. Uh, why does it make Henry so happy when she stomps on the little sperm things that fall onto the stage? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder if maybe she's, uh, I don't know, like his guardian angel or something. Possibly. But Possibly. I think, I think he only sees her when he's dreaming. Because it seems like he only sees her after he starts falling asleep while he's staring at the radiator. Yeah. Because the radiator's right next to his bed. Mm-hmm. So I think, it's a little difficult to tell <laughs> what's I, symbolic, what's a dream, what's reality. And that's it. And I think, you know, uh, with Lynch, it could be one or the other or all three all at once. It could be anything. It could just be, you know, what he's seen in his dream. You know, Lynch talks a lot about his, his dreams and his interpretation of dreams and how he tries to sort of mimic them on, on, on film. Um, and I think it, it, most of the time he sort of gets everything feels like that. Everything feels like a dream in the vast majority of Lynch's work. You know, you do feel that you're, you know, you're just moments from waking up in in, in a lot of his stories. But to, to cover Hen- uh, Henry and Jack Nance as, as Henry Spencer, um, Jack Nance is, is visually such an interesting actor. Um, I don't think he's great at sort of delivering lines he's almost comes across as a very sort of charlie chaplin sort of buster keaton sort of silent cinema sort of vibes to him um again for, yeah, you know, he has it, a good physical presence yeah and i think you know you're probably not going to get a better actor for this particular role because he plays it so well i mean if, you know if you're playing it on and off for six years then you know, you're going to be um, 
you've got to be quite sort of invested in that character, I suppose. I mean, he's primarily called upon to look and act anxious, mm. which he's excellent at. Yeah. Yeah, he's got definitely. And honestly, I'm not 100% sure if his delivery is his own voice or if he's kind of imitating David Lynch. David Lynch has a very distinct yes. kind of nasally delivery. Mm. And it, it feels like Jack Nance is at least imitating the, the pattern, if mm-hmm. not the tone. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I think that there have been sort of people who were, who worked on the film that said that the, the, the Henry character is, is very much sort of based on David Lynch because obviously they were all very, sort of close at this point or certainly Nansen and Lynch and and, uh, and Catherine Coulson they described themselves as being like a family at this point because you know they were you know, working together for six years mm. so I think that's definitely um, definitely possible that it's uh, the, the character of Henry is, is based and sort of imitated from uh, David Lynch he's got the, and he's got the, the, this sort of room this this you know, apartment, I suppose, or bedsit, or whatever you want to call it, which seems to basically consist of a bedroom and a and a bathroom. Um, Studio apartment. <laughs> <laughs> it's just bizarre. You know, basically looks out to a, a brick wall, which, you know, everybody wants to see. Yeah. Um, he's got pictures of uh, nuclear bombs on the wall. And this sort of odd, you know, again, it sort of speaks to this thing of, birth and children and and everything he's got this sort of nesting material around the room you know bottom of the radiator and in the corners even before the baby is you know revealed to be yeah that's really odd yeah it's very bizarre it's like these twigs and tumbleweedy looking piles of stringy moss and whatnot both in in front of the radiator and on top of his dresser and on the nightstand yeah like he's got a little tree growing out of the nightstand I mean, it, it surprised me actually because I've not long recently rewatched um, Twin Peaks: Return, the latest sort of series of that, and how much, how many nods there are to this film in that series as well. With the, you know, like you say, the, the twigs and the dirt and stuff sort of come up, and the the look of it is very much like the sort of post Red Room scenes in in the Return as well. And yeah, we touched on it earlier. You know, we get to this point where we meet. Henry's girlfriend and, and her family, the ex family, as they're credited, uh, which is great. Um, and yeah, this this sort of reasonably chirpy old man um, with his dodgy knees. <laughs> yes. Who has to be calmed down by his equally bizarre wife. Um, and their even more bizarre chicken dinner. Which we have to talk about because I don't. I didn't remember this. This is one of the parts of the film. How did you not remember this? <laughs> completely forgot about this part. Um, but yeah, this, these man-made chickens. Yeah. That Henry is asked to carve, and and quite fittingly asks, "How do you carve a chicken that's the size of a fist?" Basically. Hmm. To which he does, and then this blood starts pouring out, and Mary's mother has some kind of orgasm at the table. Some some kind of of fit, yeah. It's well, 
I don't know that I would. Uh, I don't know. I think maybe it it starts out pleasurable, but then she <laughs> like screams and runs out of the room, and her daughter, you know, Mary runs after her to help her. It's all very disconcerting, though. That that whole scene. Mm-hmm. And then she, her mother, reveals that um, uh, that Mary was pregnant and that she's. Uh, had the baby that's at the hospital and then she starts sort of nuzzling Henry's neck in another weird sort of quasi-sexual thing (laughs) it's just I mean it's Lynch so there's going to be you know there's a certain degree of horniness to most of Lynch's work but yeah, yeah, the mom is interrogating him, demanding to know if they've had <laughs> sexual intercourse. And of course, he's not comfortable just saying yes to his no. girlfriend's mother, you know, and he just says, I love her very much. And, you know, we've been close, uh, you know, so, and then she gets in and starts nuzzling his neck and she's like, oh, <laughs> he's just sort of panicking, he's like, Mary! <laughs> As you would, Help. as you would. Rescue me. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's another great point of of the Jack Nance performance. I think is that you, not that you wouldn't be awkward in that situation, but this, this, it's it, he's very the character is very socially awkward, and I think that just heightens mm. the tension within the film because it is just you know nobody likes to feel awkwardness in a social surrounding, right? And or anxious or anything like that, and it's just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this bizarre. is a man who has difficulty knowing how to conduct himself in ordinary interactions. So when things get weird, he def- he has no idea how to respond whatsoever. Yeah. But then obviously we're in- we're introduced to this to the baby. Yeah. I think it's sort of described as the baby. Now you had said something interesting that this recent rewatch was the first time since you had children Mm -hmm. that you watched this movie what how did you feel about the baby this time around compared to the first time well i think it just like a lot of films um and seemingly especially horrors um i had that with um pet cemetery you know once the first time i watched that post having children it completely sort of it affected me in a completely different way, and it, and and this does as well because you're quite sort of, you know, my first watching, I remember being really sort of, you know, aghast and sort of put out at, at this this thing and just kind of sort of recoiling, just mm-hmm. thinking that this is just absolutely horrible, and this time around it was like. Um, you know, it's it's a you know, it looks yeah, it looks like a an AirPod, but it's <laughs> um, you know, it's a it's a baby, and you know, although it's in a very weird situation, and everything else, it's you know, you got to think, well, that's his, you know, that's their, that's their child, and hmm. you're not sort of seeing it in that in that lens anymore, and you know, it plays really plays to those real sort of anxieties that you have as a new parent of is the, is the baby well, is the baby, mm. you know, 
Um, is this normal? Is this normal? Yeah, you know, and obviously, you know, no, none of the, you know, the or the vast majority of of this film, as pertains to the baby, is not normal. You know, if if a baby was born with significant kind of um, physical defects and things like that, then it wouldn't just be swaddled and left on top of a set of drawers. You know, it would be cared for at the hospital and everything else. Right. But you know, despite that, it's you know, and and when the when your baby gets sick for the first time, when your first child gets sick for the first time, it's genuinely, you know, one of the most sort of stressful and concerning parts of being a parent because it's the first time that it's happened and you're very worried and and everything else. Mm. And it's just you know, it's that I think that was the point in the film this time around where I was like oh my god you know when he says oh my god you are sick and suddenly you know it it, it switches and the bait and the baby is just sort of covered in stools and stuff coming out of its mouth and it's crying's changed and mm. and everything else then that was the first point i was like a bit like oh my god you know this this is getting a bit you know those concerns that you have. You need, you know, some for some people they're very major concerns, and some people they're very minor things, and the things that you just sort of think about once and you let it go. Some people can't, you know, necessarily do that. But when a baby's sick or got a cold or anything like that, you 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 your senses are heightened. Mm-hmm. You know, what if the cold's going to affect its breathing and all these kind of things that just go through your head and. Right. It's almost like Lynch sort of puts those onto the screen, yeah. You know, but and a baby not stopping crying and just the emotional and the physical pressure that it puts on parents when a you know a baby is not sleeping or a baby is unwell or a baby is not allowing you to recharge. Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely get that. It was interesting watching it again this time that I felt like, well, that you know, yes, the baby looks different, but at least at first, this baby's making typical baby noises. You know, speaking yeah. of the sound design, they do an excellent job. This, sound, this sounds like a baby. The weird sort of little gurgles and hums and just various little vocalizations that babies make mm-hmm. and Mary's really over the top about it. It's like this baby is not that loud and she's freaking out like it's screaming all night long. Mm-hmm. I say, you know, saying she's just desperate to get a night's sleep. But I mean, I empathize with that. I had a kid who was a, a difficult sleeper. Uh, as the euphemism goes, yeah. which meant that she was waking up, you know, she'd w- go from waking up once every two to three hours to every two hours to every once one and a half hours to mm-hmm. to the point where I was just losing it yeah. the subsequent day. Yeah, well, that's it. <laughs> just because, you know, you feel like you can't put, you feel mm-hmm. it, with your first baby especially, you feel like you shouldn't ever put the baby down. Mm-hmm. And leave it alone in a room for a few minutes while you go and go to the bathroom or make yourself a sandwich or... (laughs) Gather your thoughts, yeah. (laughs) What have you. 
to take care of yourself. And by the way, yes, you can. Put the baby down. It'll be okay if the baby mm-hmm. cries for like five, ten minutes while you get your shit together. Absolutely. It's much better than being super stressed and freaked out and trying to hold and manage your baby at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, give yourself some grace. There we go. Right. Movie Your Podcast, not just bringing you great information <laughs> about films and interesting chat about cinema. We are now giving you baby advice. Parenting advice, yes. <laughs> but I mean, this this baby's not that bad. It's just like, just pick the baby up once in a while. You, you know? know, we are sort of, I suppose, again, you know, it comes down to that no exposition. We're sort of, you know, we're plonk. We don't know how long that baby's been there now. And Right. But it's true when he says, oh, you are sick all of a sudden. Yeah. You know, this baby goes from looking smooth skinned Mm -hmm. and uh, not terribly drooly to, you know, sweaty and little pustules everywhere and his goo coming out of it, oozing out of its mouth and sounding like, but again, like a normal snorky baby, like a baby with a bad cold Mm -hmm. sounds. But it's got that same sort of distressed breathing. And yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it's it's a reflection of, like, how you view the baby. When the baby gets sick, it's like, obviously, there's something horribly wrong, and we should take it to the doctor and make mm-hmm. sure that this kid is okay. Yeah. And doctors will tell you they would rather you bring it in, you know, that you're paranoid and you bring the baby yeah. in with something that you're wondering about than not. But... Mm-hmm. But that doesn't seem to be an option here in this world at all. Right. Really. It's not an option. Taking no. taking the baby to the doctor does not seem to be an option once this baby is home from the hospital. <laughs> it's just... But, I mean, it does kind of make me... Uh, I don't know. It makes me wonder. Is he just... It comes off a little... I don't know. I think it, I think it is Yeah, primarily anxiety. Oh over being a parent and like an obsessive ableist thing that a lot of parents do that they don't even think about is wanting a healthy baby and saying you know when people say oh you know do you know if it's a boy or a girl and they're like oh we don't care as long as the baby is healthy mm-hmm. and it's like you know, sometimes you don't get a healthy baby sometimes you get a baby who has you know some sort mm-hmm. of disability or a chronic condition yeah. or what have you well apparently that that was that was a lot of inspiration because this is first lynch's first child which i believe was Catherine lynch uh his daughter uh, maybe he's got several so. uh, his, his firstborn um was was born with a club foot mm. which is apparently again you know a, an inspiration you know, obviously that's a club foot's completely different to um a shiny gooey airpod baby but <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. That's some sort of chronic disease, perhaps. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's um it's fascinating to sort of that you say that because obviously that, that does that is apparently, you know, an inspiration that was drawn on by Lynch. Yeah. You have to come up with a, a new normal. You know, what's normal for you? What's mm. normal for your baby? Mm. And you have to figure that out and it it's terrifying. <laughs> As a parent, to have to navigate, you that. know, you have that, you have that, that anxiety and that paranoia is just there anyway, isn't it? With the, with a baby that's that's perfectly healthy, you know, mm. it's like the, the 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 extent that you go to in just preparing a bottle mm. and making sure that everything's sanitary. You know, there's not a germ within half a mile of you while you're preparing <laughs> this bottle. Right. You you know just the care that you go to. 
in in making sure that that's so is just you know and then you'd actually did i touch that don't know I, I need a new bottle that day you know like i need to start <laughs> a fresh one or whatever it is and sanitize and everything it's just incredible mm-hmm. just the effect that it has on you and how you know how your life changes when you become a parent it it's now yeah. you know it's never the same <laughs> Never there's pre kids and there's after kids and there's, yeah exactly so it is it definitely is not the same I mean you can get some of that back as they get older mm-hmm. and a little more self sufficient you can have a little more time to yourself or time with your partner but it's yeah it's not the same it's not the same there is going to chronically be a block of your brain devoted to your kids mm-hmm. no matter how old they get. But we're we're getting very very sidetracked now with parents so we're, <laughs> we're getting way <laughs> into the weeds here we need to. We so, haven't even gotten to the sexy neighbor. No, that's, <laughs> my next note is sexy neighbor. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's it, what she is in my. I don't have a name on here. I just have sexy neighbor. She is, well, so. she's actually credited as beautiful girl across the hall. Yes, which you know, again, a staple of David Lynch is mm. this sort of a very attractive, almost femme fatale looking. Yes, woman. Yeah, she is very film noir, femme fatale yes. sort of look. You, you find very much in in most of Lynch's work, um, which I, you know, I suppose is is there to represent that sort of escape from parental life and. The desire to to have something more, I suppose. You know, it's very, mm-hmm. she's very much there to be. There's something of your own. Yes, exactly. Um, and then this, see, that's a very vivid memory of the scene where he goes over to her apartment and they they sort of um, get kinky, and and they just sort of drop into this pool very slowly, and her hair is just sort of. This is at his apartment. Was it in his apartment? Because at first she's looking over at the baby on the oh, over yes, on the table. Of course it is. Yeah, but I, that's one of the scenes that I really remembered from the first time watching it, and I don't know why. Maybe it's just because I was a horn, yeah, a horny teenager. Well, not everyone has a. You would call it a paddling pool in the middle of their bed. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Um, and then yeah, I mean, full of mean, who knows what that is. <laughs> Um, and you mentioned her earlier, the um, lady in the radiator, mm. which is just, again, typical Lynch. You know, th- this film has everything, everything that, that Lynch will become famous for. The, a musical piece just randomly dropped in, um, yeah. in which she's singing, uh, in heaven everything is fine. Yes. And stomping on semen, I suppose. I, I think it's supposed to be sperm. It's this little wiggly thing that looks like a piece of intestine, but with a like a blob on the end of it. Sperm, you know? sorry, not semen. And then we get this sort of extended uh, a dream sequence, I guess, with... Um, Where you get the name of the movie, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, sort of constantly fidgeting with the rail and, you know, again, you know, plays into that sort of anxiety and... You know, and another fascin- fascinating piece from earlier on in the film that I'd, I'd not picked up before actually was the because I remember sort of noticing, you know, how he he's very sort of ordered in his life, and you, you get the impression that Henry likes his routines, and he's very sort of ordered in his <laughs> his room, although it's very sort of bleak and grey and everything else. It's neat, it's tidy, but you know, aside from his sort of nesting material around the edge of the room. But then he's got this this 
this blanket that's just covered in holes that don't, doesn't really make mm. sense and it's it's very noticeable. But then late as the film goes on, you, you see that he's sort of nervously picking at the blanket and that's where the holes have come from. But yeah, you, you get this... <sighs> so his head comes off, it's picked up by a boy <laughs> in the street. Yeah, yeah, he's he's envisioning the baby's head coming out of his yeah. suit pushing his own head off, off of his yeah. body and then this kid picks it up <laughs> then that's taken to a factory where it makes pencils they make pencils from his head i think they have the pencils but they, they use his, his brain for the erasers use the brain for the erasers that's it i mean it's just so 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 surreal um and again you know like i said this was the first time i've seen anything like this you know, 14, 15-year-olds, yeah. and this just blew blew my mind. The whole, this whole section is just incredible. And you think, again, you think mm. $100,000, that mm. head looks pretty incredible. It does. It looks surprisingly good. It looks, I, I would say it looks at least as good as the Schwarzenegger head in Total Recall does. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it looks, it looks great. Somebody put a lot of time and work into that. I mean, the thing I love about that sequence of this, again, bringing up, like, unexpected humor is after the boy picks up the head and he brings it to this building, there's, like, a... There's a man at a desk who starts frantically punching a buzzer <laughs> over to his right to summon somebody, and finally yeah. this big man comes out of the office behind him and says, Okay, Paul! <laughs> <laughs> like, I get it, you need me to come out here. And he... Paul points at the kid with the head and the the big man looks he looks pleased you mm. know he looks very pleased that this boy has brought him this Random quality head, head? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know but again I I thought that was very amusing that little bit with just a very human interaction where you someone's exasperated uh, mm. at someone else's impatience <laughs> For their presence. Um, um, but then we get to the, the very depressing conclusion of this film in which Henry kills his baby. Yeah. Which yeah. I'm not sure that's what he's trying to do at first, but it, it no. seems like he goes with it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, it's, it's, again, you know, watching this pre-children... Obviously, it's a very disturbing scene, but mm -hmm. this time around, it re it did really bother me, and it really, it, it, you know, it went a lot deeper into my sort of psyche, which is is obviously going to be natural. Um, but it is just horrible. I think it is, as with anything, it's a sound. You know, you, you mentioned the the sound design for the for the baby. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in terms of it crying and everything else, and that just adds to. to, to to just the pure sort of horror and how disturbing that, that that moment is because the sound is just so visceral and so real and just mm. horrid. The baby is very clearly in distress. Yes, yeah. And it's just, yeah. It really, really bothered me this time around. Um, and, I, I mean, Lynch, you know, you know, he's not, well known for happy endings or anything like that, or even no, you know, endings that are, are maybe sort of conclusive. Um, 
But I mean, it doesn't it, look like, at least at first, it doesn't look like he's doing anything too horrible. It looks like he's just trying to cut the bandages yeah, off the baby yeah. to see what the baby looks like underneath. Yeah. And you don't find out until he finishes. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, but while he's doing it, the baby's in obvious extreme yeah. distress, but he continues on. Mm. And it's not until he finishes that the bandages sort of crack open and reveal just the the baby's organs mm-hmm. inside the bandages were the baby's body yeah yeah and he just stares at it for a while and then stabs an organ in the middle <laughs> he just sort of picks one yeah it looks important and mm-hmm. stabs it they don't look like human organs no but that aside um and to sort of maybe wrap up a little bit i still think this is an incredible film a very important film obviously it started Mm. the world on the journey of of david lynch and you know what the the filmmaker that he would become set Um, the tone certainly set the (laughs) tone yeah it's one that he pretty well stuck with you know and he's 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 not for everybody david lynch you know some people will will not have a, a desire for you know to, for the kind of film that he makes but this you know dis- again despite it's it's very dark subject matter and tone and everything else i think it's probably you know aside from the elephant man and uh and presumably the straight story like i say i haven't seen that this is probably one of his more accessible films now that's an odd thing to say. <laughs> I don't know if I would agree with. That. But no, in terms of in terms of you know being able to sort of know what it's about, I suppose, and sort of get an inkling of, of what it's about. Yeah, the the themes are are pretty clear. Yeah, in this movie, you know, the the fears of parenthood and commitment and uh, social interactions, of uh, various kinds. I think that's that's very clear, but actually figuring out what's going on, who's who's the man with the levers, who's the lady in the radiator, um, what's real, what isn't, does is the sequence with the neighbor a fantasy? Does the neighbor not even ever come over? Is that all in Henry's head? Mm-hmm. Does Henry kill himself at the end? Is that what that means when he goes and the, mm. is embraced by the lady in the radiator? Mm. Um, well, I actually have a theory about the lady in the radiator, but it's incredibly crude. Okay. Go for it. <laughs> okay. So, imagine, um, let me take you to American Pie mm. and Tube Socks. Mm. Yes. Used as a... She is the personification of his tube sock? No, 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 no. <laughs> but, you know, maybe a teenager might use a tube sock to perform a, a certain act mm-hmm. of self-pleasure. Keep things tidy. Mm-hmm, yes. So maybe Henry used his sock at some point. And then when his sock gets wet, he puts it on the radiator, which will drip down. Mm. And so that's where the sperm comes from. In the lady in the radiator. Oh, interesting. It's a bit of a stretch. It doesn't really explain who she is, though. It explains the sperm falling on the stage, but... Yeah. 
but maybe I don't know. I mean, she's very sort of moon. My theory is she's sort of his guardian angel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe or or an angel sort of looking down on him, trying to keep his spirits up. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe she's stomping on the sperm to keep Mary from getting pregnant again. Mm, possibly, <laughs> possibly. Well, I like to think she's the physical manifestation of his wank sock. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> and on that note, is there anything that you would like to add about um, Eraserhead before we move I, on? I think we've mostly, I think we've pretty much covered it. It's a very strange movie, and dis- despite the level of detail we've gone into talking about it, I would, you know, if you're willing to watch something that's a little more experimental and less of a straightforward narrative, I would recommend it just for the cinematography, Mm -hmm. the sound design, uh, and just supporting more unusual filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Less formulaic. Absolutely. Okay. Well... We shall take a short break and we'll be back in a moment. Okay, so welcome to the intermission. This is part of the episode in which I ask my co-host a random question, a question they've not prepared for, and get their honest first answer. So, Nicole, are you ready? Ready as I'll ever be. Okay. So I took a bit of time uh, earlier today to stalk your letterboxed account. Mm, Okay. And listed on your letterboxed account are your favourites, or four favourites, which are... It's a Wonderful Life, The Host, Howl's Moving Castle, and Mandy. Now, the fate of the world lies <laughs> on you, erasing oh. one of these films from existence. Oh. Which oh. one would it be? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Gone forever. You can never watch it again. Uh, I I think I I might have jamied Nicole here. Yes. (laughs) If I 100% had to. Oh, man. It would come down between Mandy and the host. Just because It's a Wonderful Life is my favorite film of all time. (laughs) So there's no getting rid of that. (laughs) I watch it every year. And Howl's Moving Castle is a major comfort film for me. You know, just even the the opening chords of the soundtrack to that film. Shame, uh, shamefully, I've the only one of those I've seen is "It's a Wonderful Life." Wow, the, <laughs> just the opening chords calm my calm me down, <laughs> no matter how anxious or upset I may be. So between Mandy and the host, I mean, Mandy, I was blown away at the whole approach and atmosphere and performances 
in that film and just the sheer gusto (laughs) of everyone involved. And then, but the host is like this landmark of Korean new wave cinema and Bong Joon-ho and his famous blending of tones and, you know, comedy and drama and pathos and suspense and, uh, I think I think the creature still looks good even now. I think the effects hold up. I think it's a great story. Mm, I've seen and clips of the host, and I must say that does it does look pretty uh, pretty good still. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I have to get rid of one of them. I mean, I guess Panos Cosmatos has only gotten to make two films. Bong Joon-ho has made several more than that, so I guess get rid of the host. Get rid of the host, okay. And he can make another one. <laughs> <laughs> give him the give him at least the budget for that and let him let him make something else. Well, I mean, if it helps, it was an equally difficult choice for me because my my four favorites listed on Letterboxd obviously changes all the time, but uh, a Jaws, The Wicker Man, Seven and JFK. I know which one I'd get rid of out of that. <laughs> <laughs> Go on then, which one? Oh, JFK and Heartbeat. <laughs> I love it. It's one of my favourites. Well, obviously it's one of my favourites because I just told you that. But, you know, very much in the in the, in the the way that you say Howl's Moving Castle is, is a comfort film to you. JFK is to me, I remember it being like one of the only... <laughs> VHSs I had at my mum's when we used to go and stop there at the weekend, so I watched it and watched it and watched it. I was fascinated by it. And Jaws, pretty much the same. Um, the Wicker Man I came to a bit a lot later. But unfortunately, it'd probably have to be seven for me. Okay. Out of those four. Um, but there we go. It wasn't... Um, that was. Uh, I'm glad I stumped you on that one because you're normally reasonably <laughs> unstumpable. Um, That's a tough question. Mm-hmm. That is a tough question. That would have been. That would have been. Uh, imagine if I'd have saved that for Jamie. That one. <laughs> I'd have still been sat here three days later. I think. I mean, I just had to go with pure numbers <laughs> on because <laughs> literally, Panos Cosmatos has made Beyond the Black Rainbow and Mandy, and that's it. And I love both of those movies. Man, um, like I say, man, man, I've said before about many films, Mandy's one of those ones that sort of sat languishing on my watch list for a while. But I know it's got, it has a lot of love, and I know I need to be in a right frame of mind to watch it. Yeah, that is that is one to watch at night in the <clears> dark. <laughs> yeah, but with your mind wide open, <laughs> and you will. It's a good. It's a good ride. Okay, but uh, but yeah, there we go. That's uh, the end of the intermission. We'll head back to. The main podcast. Thank you very much, Nicole. Obviously, we're, we're on to your choice, Nicole. So, what? Um, obviously, you mentioned uh, Holy Motors. Holy Motors. Earlier. I looked at. I th- I thought briefly about Tenet. I thought briefly about things like The Endless and Something in the Dirt. The Endless. Benson and Moorhead's films. I came very close to choosing Primer, which is a 
time travel film that absolutely does not hold your hand and involves many charts and diagrams <laughs> uh, to understand it properly and the sequence of things that's going on. But uh, given the spectacular implosion of Shane Carruth, I thought I would leave that out. <laughs> I've spoken about him at length on my previous podcast when we did an episode about upstream color. So I didn't want to go back over that territory. <laughs> and so the one that I did choose is more fun, question mark? <laughs> uh, and the film I chose was Triangle from Triangle is directed by Christopher Smith. The summary is already off at the beginning. Uh, it says five friends set sail. It's actually six people setting sail. And their yacht is overturned by a strange and st sudden storm. A mysterious ship arrives to rescue them. And what happens next cannot be explained. So uh, this movie is written and directed by Christopher Smith and stars Melissa George, Joshua McIver, Jack Taylor, Michael Dorman, Henry Nixon, Rachel Carpani, Liam Hemsworth, Ooh. and in smaller roles, Emma Lung and Brian Probetz. 
Uh, so this movie, the first time I watched it, I went in a hundred percent blind, mm -hmm. which is a fantastic way to go into it. So I would strongly recommend if you've ever thought about seeing this film, you know, go, go do that first and then come back. <laughs> <laughs> Because the this film doesn't really reveal its nature until about 42 minutes in or so when it starts to loop. Yeah. And the the yacht shows up again. The the people waiting to be rescued show up again. Yeah. And I mean for for all intents and purposes, it, it starts off you very much feel that this it's you know and even just looking at the you know the synopsis for this film and and the cover and everything else this it very much looks like it's going to be a sort of slasher film yes or a you know hack and slash kind of horror looks like a slasher film on a ship yeah exactly and that's not what this is. i mean there are there are certainly slasher elements yeah. to it yeah, There's yeah certainly yeah. a lot of killing mm -hmm. <laughs> many people get killed more than once yeah <laughs> <laughs> and many seagulls. <laughs> yes, many seagulls. So the primary thing that I really caught on to this time that we'll, I think, get into more detail in is that this isn't four loops in this movie if you're counting, like, the number of Jesses mm -hmm. running around yeah. at any given time. it's It's not really four loops, but one. Uh, that finishes at the end of the film. Yeah. Or rather, it's sort of four smaller loops contained in one bigger mm -hmm. cycle. Yeah. Because various things need to happen that don't happen in every part of the loop. Yeah. Some of them are different in various ways. Mm -hmm. But then the whole thing starts over again, and you know that all of those elements are going to happen again exactly the way that they did before. Yeah. So, was this your first time seeing this movie, or this is my second time? The first, the first time I, it wasn't long after it came out. I remember, um, I believe I rented it um, from Blockbuster or one of its uh, a similar style, um, you know, rental store. And I remember really liking the film, but. There was so much I'd forgotten about it. I remember, you know, obviously I, I remembered there was a time loop and that it was her that was doing the killing in the end and all that sort of thing. But I just forgot. So especially, you know, it, it was quite jarring that how quickly we did get into that. And I always thought that that was, remembered it being much more of a twist at the end mm. than it was, you know, but we very much sort of get into that pretty quickly. Um into the film right but i enjoyed it as much as i did the first time for sure it's very um a very very interesting it's interesting film it's definitely rewarding mm. on a rewatch mm -hmm. when you know what's going to happen the very start of the movie uh, makes a lot more sense yes because there's she's behaving very strangely until the part where she falls asleep on the small boat, mm -hmm. the sailboat. And up until that point, she's she's almost sleepwalking, it seems like, mm -hmm. and behaving very oddly. And then after that, she's, she's sort of fresh and normal and fine. And that's where 
the memory loss happens is out on yeah. the yacht. Mm-hmm. And we never find out why this is happening, or at least we're not 100% sure why. No. I mean, it, I think where, for me, where the the confusion probably comes is the the rest of the people on the sailboat mm-hmm. is where they sort of come into it, because obviously whether it's the right time to sort of skip to the end, but obviously the suggestion is that she dies in the car crash and mm. then that's that's the only bit for me in this film that was really, I couldn't understand where those five people come into it. Right, yeah, for me that part is odd because she, <laughs> at that time we discover, you know, near the end of the film she's she's in a car crash, but she's driving, she's both driving and she has a version of herself dead in the trunk of the car yes mm. and so they you know the people at the crash scene find the body that was in the trunk you know she's wearing this that body's wearing a patchwork dress uh that we see at the very beginning mm-hmm. and she dressed differently is suddenly outside of the car crash she's just standing on the road mm-hmm. uninjured yeah looking at it and so it's you know is that her soul and this mm-hmm. whole thing is a journey of her soul mm-hmm. trying to work through some stuff yeah i don't know if it's before moving on to the next plane or whatever i think that's the the most likely mm-hmm. explanation given the mythology involved there's definitely a suggestion that obviously the taxi driver there is some manifestation of death or and you know he's taken away she needs to go and all that sort of thing right for sure. Well, and there's references to it in the film in the name of the ship. The name of the ship that Yes. You know, that they go on this they go on this sailboat journey. She and five other people, they go on the sailboat. The owner of the sailboat has been coming into the diner where she works and invited her to come along. Yeah. And, you know, there might be like a hint of romantic interest there. Mm-hmm. And they get into a storm. The ship the sailboat capsizes and they're on the sitting on the hull of the capsized boat and this big steamship mm-hmm. arrives out of the mist uh, and it's called the Aeolus and Aeolus in uh, the mythology is recounted by Homer in the Odyssey in the Iliad mm-hmm. Aeolus was the king of a particular island and he gave Odysseus a bag of containing all the winds except one uh, so that the others would be contained and the one remaining wind would blow he and his crew home and the crew is suspicious that it's some kind of treasure and right before they get home they open the bag and they get blown all the way back Mm -hmm. to aeolus's island and have to make the journey over again yeah which is pertinent (laughs) but also the son of Aeolus is Sisyphus, and he tricked death. At some point, uh, Sisyphus, when death came for him, he tied him up and kept him out of the world for a while. And Ares had to come and help free death. And at some point, Sisyphus said to his wife to not bury him when death finally came for him to not bury his body and not perform any sacrificial rites for him upon his death. And 
So when death took him to the underworld, he was like, hey, you know, my wife didn't do these things for me. She didn't bury my body. She didn't do this stuff for me. And death let Sisyphus go back to punish his wife for not doing those things. (laughs) And instead, Sisyphus lived out a long life uh, afterward until old age when death came for him a second time. Right. So, as his punishment in the underworld, he must roll a rock up a hill, get almost all the way to the top, and it rolls all the way back down, and he has to do it over again. So, in two separate ways, it's it's about having to redo something as fighting against fate. Purgatory. Yes. And so, the... I don't know where to start with this. It's a tricky... You know, there are four... Four main... Jesses. By the end. I think of the one as... Jess Prime. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning of the story... Jess Prime is what I call the woman who initially gets on the boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, loses her memory during the storm. The... So it's Jess, Greg is the one who invited her on the boat. Mm-hmm. Victor is his ship hand, played yeah. by Liam Hemsworth in an early role. Mm-hmm. Greg has two friends, Sally and Downey, who are a married couple. And Sally and Downey, without Greg's knowledge or permission, have brought a single friend of Sally's to try to <laughs> pair up with Greg. Poor Heather. Yeah, poor Heather. <laughs> Heather gets the short end of the stick mm-hmm. in this story in a big way. <laughs> so, during the storm, when the ship capsizes, Heather is lost. <laughs> she is washed out a window and lost overboard, and that's the last we see of her until the cycle starts again. Mm-hmm. So, the Jesses we see are the Jess that's involved in the ship capsizing, and the, the one who's initially picked up by the boat and then there's she evolves into when the first loop begins again what i call just wg just with the gun (laughs) she picks up a rifle and starts uh, asserting herself and being a badass and trying to fix things (laughs) and then that evolves into tank top jess when she gives, after she gives her sweater to Sally, which we will eventually get to, because that's that's a scene. Oh my lord! Um, <laughs> and then from tank top, Jess, she evolves into what I call Jess jacket, which is after she has like this emotional break <laughs> and puts on that set of coveralls and gets what actually is the first gun. Yes. Because if you look just with the sweater, just Prime, when she goes to get the gun, there's already one missing from the rack. <laughs> but when she's in the coverall set and going to get a gun, the rack is full. Yeah. There's so much detail in this film. It is pretty incredible. Absolutely. There is so much. And it's also the boat's called Triangle. It takes place in the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, the Bermuda Triangle is roughly the area between the island of Bermuda, 
Puerto Rico and the city of Miami, Florida, which is mm-hmm. where the ship is out of. They sail out of Miami. Yeah. Which sort of answered a question that I was going to pose to you. Mm. And I did assume that that was the implication. Because it's always a big annoyance for me in films, in cinema, and is that, you know, and I didn't realise this until researching the episode before I started to watch it. And I just sort of, I'll have a look, have a look at the cast, see who's in it. And obviously the, Everybody in the cast is Australian or Australasian, mm-hmm. um, you know, New Zealand, maybe from New Zealand or whatever. Yeah, they they shot in Australia or off of Australia. But the it's like, why do they need to be American? Everybody's American in this film. Mm-hmm. It's like, I mean, you know, from my perspective, the American accents are pretty are fine. You know, there's no. Yeah, I, I think, think everyone does a good job. It's not really obvious that anyone's not american there's no issues there but it was just like why why do they need to be i suppose the, the only reason is that you know the, the bermuda triangle aspect of it but then mm-hmm. you know i think that's got to be it It just always seems a pointless decision because there must be areas like that in australia or new zealand that are a bit spooky and a bit weird the australian mystery spot yeah yeah mm-hmm <laughs> But anyway, I've got that out of the way. One of my major annoyances, is, as I've mentioned before on this podcast, but I'll get it out of the way now. <laughs> so, there's some tricky bits in this film. There are some great details that tell you that this the grand loop has happened many times. Mm-hmm. When she becomes what I call, you know, just WG, just with the gun, is when the loop starts over mm-hmm. the first the, the small loop starts over mm-hmm. and the the overturned sailboat shows up again yeah and there's this fantastic shot you know everyone else has died jess is the last one left alive of the people from the sailboat yeah and she's looking into a mirror and mm-hmm. she hears something and the camera, rather than following her backing away from the mirror and going out the door, the camera goes through the mirror yeah. and follows the mirror image of Jess mm-hmm. out the door and out to the deck and yeah. looking over the rail. And so that's hint one <laughs> that maybe that's not. I don't know if that's not the original Jess or if it's the second Jess or if that's, you know. Jess in the mirror, Jess. Right, through the looking glass, Jess. (laughs) Um, But she goes out and she looks and she sees the upturned sailboat with everyone on it, Mm -hmm. you know, waving their arms at the ocean liner. And she backs up into the room and bumps into a, a, a phonograph player. And she bumps into it more than once. She bumps into it and then she bumps into it again. She turns around and then she turns around again. Mm-hmm. And there's this sort of stuttering effect that happens several times as she is leaving this room again. Mm-hmm. That gives you a hint that maybe we're we're showing bits from multiple loops. Don't know if this is the same room, but did you clock the number of the room? That's a different room. 
It's a different that's a different room. room. But there is a room where key events happen. That's room 237. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very on the nose. <laughs> Which is, yes, Christopher Smith in uh, several interviews has credited inspiration from this film from La Jetée which was also made into 12 monkeys mm-hmm. uh which is about a a time loop uh the shining mm-hmm. which the interior of the ship is very yes reminiscent of indeed and he mentioned don't look now mm-hmm. yeah and then just also the idea of what if the victim in a slasher movie is also the perpetrator what if mm-hmm. the final girl is also the killer my attention <laughs> <laughs> so so there's definitely a call out to the to the shining in there but that scene where she where it goes through the mirror is 42 and a half minutes in so mm. it's not at all clear what kind of movie this is you think mm-hmm. it's a slasher movie up to this point yeah and then it starts to loop and my mind was blown <laughs> mm-hmm. i was like Oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> All right. So how how is it going to proceed from here? Yeah. You know, my main thing with time loop movies that is the point of most time loop movies is how are they going to break out of the loop? Yeah. And so that's what I'm looking for. And then, you know, once it starts looping again and then like a third time. But then I think you... Your expectation for a time loop film is that, you know, you're going to go, obviously we've determined that there's now a time loop and, mm. you know, for most time loop films, you're probably going to go through maybe a couple of times, you know, whether it's something like a Groundhog Day or whatever, where they don't mm. realise what's happening. So that, though, you know, you get through a couple of loops or, or whatever um, and then they start to try and change things. But this is like first loop, she tries to try and change, she realises and she starts to try and change things which i think for me is very it was very unexpected even on the second time watching it yes you know she gets straight into i'm not having this this is you know and changing up what happened before um immediately yeah you fully expect her to hide and observe yes yeah when the second when the first loop starts Mm -hmm. uh, and to hide you know keep hidden from everybody so she doesn't cause confusion yeah but right from the beginning, when her in the sweater without the gun, Jess Prime arrives with mm-hmm. Victor and is talking with Victor in the banquet room. Poor Victor. She, oh, poor Victor. <laughs> no matter what she does, she still ends up killing him. <laughs> she walks in with the gun and confronts both of them. Yeah. And it's already, you know, this confrontation that's happening in the banquet room is happening because there's been there's already been another iteration of Jess on the mm-hmm. ship that's causing trouble and confusion for Jess Prime. Yeah. So that's how you know that there were there have been things before her happening. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the the mindfuckery of this movie <laughs> is trying to figure out where the loop starts. Yes. Where's the where's the beginning? Where's the end of the thread here? Mhm. And can we even find it? I'm not sure that we can. Mm-hmm. No, no, not at all. You're not even consistently in that loop because the loop has already changed from the first loop 
Mm. So now you're in, like you say, you're into that second loop and you just, yeah. Yeah, they already, in the, the first time through, they find her keys. It's not overly complicated to follow, but it's, it. you just, you, you have to concentrate so hard. <laughs> it's a good thing, yes. I think, in a good way. And that's not a bad point to this film. I think it is, you know, you're with it for that. You're with it for the ride, really. You know, yeah. you're invested. And as the loops continue, things become more clear mm-hmm. as to who's doing various things on the ship. Who told Downey and Sally to go to the theater? Who yes. wrote that on the mirror? Who, mm-hmm. you know, who shot Greg and when? Mm-hmm. So just various things like that become clear <clears throat> as you're watching. But it's much, much easier on second watch. <laughs> to put it all together and i was taking extensive notes i think it took me like three and a half hours to watch this movie because i had to keep pausing and writing things down to make sure that i had everything in order mm-hmm. and what was going on because the you know the first time you're going through the story when they first arrive on the ship things are are happening and you don't know why you don't see the the impetus for certain actions that happen and you don't know why Someone asks the time when they're when they first get to the boat, they all go into this banquet room together mm-hmm. at first. Yeah. And there's this whole spread laid out of fresh food. We never find out why that's there. Mm-hmm. And someone asks about the time and Victor says something about eleven thirty. The clock on the wall says about eight twenty, and Jess looks at her watch and it's in sync with the clock on the wall. Mm-hmm. We don't know why that is. <laughs> <laughs> It's a mystery. Why would it need to be? Well, I mean, I suppose maybe that because th- this is all a manifestation of something to do with uh, with Jess and and her her mind. You know, whether it's her own personal purgatory or or mm. whatever it is. You know, she's in tune with it, um, and everybody else isn't. That's the only thing I think because it's like, you know, this is all set. And you know, obviously, there's the. Uh, the connections with the name of the ship and everything else to mm. to the to the stories you've explained and everything, but then it's like why why a ship why you know why the yacht in the first place, why these people mm. um and you can only assume that really they're made that's her manifestation right yeah and the the empty ocean liner reflects you know some of the stories about the Bermuda Triangle or about mm. people coming across abandoned ships, yeah where there's no one on board, but it doesn't look like it's been in any d- distress. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like anything has gone wrong on board the ship. It's just all the people were missing. Yeah. So. Do, do you need to be going? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I shall be back. Okay. So I just had a thought that I think... <laughs> I have a theory. She's definitely dead. <laughs> I think that patchwork dress Jess was the one driving the car when they got mm-hmm. into the accident. And I'm not sure where the tank top and shorts and sweater came from with the like wedge heels. It's a really odd combination, especially for a boat. <laughs> when you're going on a sailboat, you don't wear heels. <laughs> I'm down for it. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to deny. Oh, she looks good in it, but, you know. I'm not going to deny that you know, <laughs> Melissa George looks fantastic in this film. Yeah. 
and I'm a red-blooded male, so I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to ding you for it. Um, <laughs> but I think it's because her son is the way he's portrayed is like semi-verbal or non-verbal autistic. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. he goes to a special needs school. Uh, she talks about how every day has to be the same. That not, you know, nothing can be out of place, and that's very clear from his behavior. That there's when things are different from what he expects, that it's extremely upsetting for him, and he has trouble handling it. I like seeing another version of his mom at the window. <laughs> That'd throw anybody <laughs> off. Um, but you know, like when they hit the seagull and there's blood on the windshield, and he really flips out. You know, I mean. Yes, any child would be upset that there was blood on the windshield, but not necessarily to that degree. Mm-hmm. But I think because she complains about every day being the same, that yeah, that's part of her punishment. Yes. Is that no matter what she does, she can't change the outcomes, everything is going to unfold just the same mm. every time, no matter how hard she struggles yeah. and tries to help herself break out of the loop. Mm-hmm. It isn't going to work ever. No. And I suppose it's a, it's punishment at the end of the day, isn't it? Because obviously it's revealed in that last loop that she's not quite the the doting mother that she maybe or the doting and troubled mother that she sort of portrayed as at the start of the film and she's right really not very nice at all right i mean the movie opens with a shot of her holding her son and you mm-hmm. know cradling him and and telling him it's okay it was just a bad dream which we find out later is he witnessed her killing another version of his mother. <laughs> She's dead on the floor behind her. She's like, no, 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 mommy's fine. Mommy's fine. It's just a bad dream. <laughs> but, you know, that version of her in the patchwork dress we see near the end of the film has slapped him because he spilled his paint because he looked out the window and he saw another version of his mom and, you know, yeah. probably in the real world, it was some other impetus that startled him and caused him to spill his paint. Yeah. But she strikes him. She slaps him at one point mm. because she's so frustrated. And mm. she's not getting the help she needs as a single mom of a special needs kid. She's not, mm-hmm. you know, she should be seeing a therapist to help her out, figuring out her, her feelings about it and be able to deal with her child in a calm and more measured manner. You see, my reading of it was a bit more, maybe a bit more nihilistic than that, because I read it more as, you know, obviously in the beginning that we've seen, you know, that she's frustrated and tired and everything Mm. else, and that's why she's, but she's, you know, she's putting on a brave face, she's trying her best and working through it and everything. But I think then... The impression that I got at the end was that she was just not a very nice person, rather than necessarily pushed to the limits. Yeah, that that could well be. And that's why it was happening to her, rather than anything to do with Bermuda Triangles or anything. You know, she she was a bad person in life, and that's why she's got to relive 
the life yeah. as it is. That would make sense. That would make sense. I read it as she was so, you know, she had been invited to go sailing and she was so desperate to do something different and go somewhere else that she was at her wit's end trying to make it happen. Mm. But I think, you know, she comes off as more tender at the end because she's she's kind of learning a lesson as these loops go on. You know, she's mm -hmm. pushing through all the horrible things that are happening by thinking of her son and getting back to her son. You know, she's mm -hmm. she's been through a shipwreck. She's <laughs> yeah. been on this ship weird stuff's going on that she doesn't understand people are treating her terribly and she's not sure why mm -hmm. you know and it's because the in the story they're encountering other visions of her but sally's suspicious of her from minute one the second she sets foot mm -hmm. on the sailboat sally doesn't like her yeah or sally might actually might not even like her before she meets her because she's got somebody else in mind for her <laughs> friend greg um mm -hmm. But yeah, so I think it's that it's definitely a, a punishment and that ties in with the mythology and um, everything else. Yeah. And it's quite, you know, I mean, when you think about it, it's quite, quite you know, a cruel one as well, because if you look at other films that, that maybe taken that sort of angle of, of punishment, purgatory and all that sort of stuff, mm. you know, there, there tends to be just the maybe the one, maybe two loops of sort of, you know, this is this is how this. Even Jacob's ladder that I mentioned earlier, you know, he's 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 living his life post a certain event, and you know, he's he's moving on to the next world. But this, like you say, it's it's punishment. So it's made even crueler by the fact that you know, while she's in that cycle, it's obvious that there is a cycle. You mm. know, it's not like the bodies disappear every time as we see you know with the with uh, Sally, is it Sally yes the Sally's body you know the multiple bodies that are that are on the deck when she's at the end of the second cycle i think that is i believe so yeah cuz it's shotgun. Jess with a gun before she gives up her sweater mm -hmm. um and the seagull and everything so you know even though she is on this perpetual cycle and the cycles within the cycle mm. those each time those bodies are there they're added upon every time right and she's allowed to see that yes. you know you see the multiples of everything you see the necklace from when she peers down through a grate yeah. in the ship that her necklace gets caught every time and falls into this pile of dozens of necklaces i stopped and counted every time and it's yeah. between like 30 and three dozen of everything mm -hmm. Um, when yeah. she writes herself a note saying if they bored kill them all it's in her handwriting and she writes it again to confirm that it's her handwriting but there are dozens of copies of this note lying around yeah and then when sally's running from her and she's not sure why because she's not the one she's not the version of herself that has stabbed sally that is a later version of herself that does that yeah. but sally doesn't know that so sally's running from her and mm -hmm. jess follows her up to the deck and this she hears sally crying and turns this corner and seagulls fly up in her face for a second but she looks and there are dozens of dead versions of sally in this yeah. sort of 
dead end on one of the decks and that Mm -hmm. the shot comes like a little over an hour into the movie and i was my jaw hit the floor Mm. the first time because it's a stunning shot it's the impact is tremendous Mm -hmm. and absolutely just the horror of it hits you Mm -hmm. you know it's like yeah it's it's more theoretical horror when it's when she's writing notes and it's coffees in the necklace but all these piles of sally yeah can you imagine you know i'm sure this is because it's punishment these aren't real people Mm -hmm. you know they're sort of avatars set in to be part of jess's punishment Mm -hmm. but they're portrayed like they're real people and the absolute horror it would be to find dozens of dead versions of yourself yeah, absolutely. On this mystery ship that you boarded that day. Mm-hmm. And you're wounded, you know. It's like, oh, I see where this is going. <laughs> yeah. And this, I mean, the seagulls play a huge part in this film as well, obviously. They're, they're quite sort of consistent through the film. Right. And I mean, that's a mythological thing, too. That's a sailing sailor's superstition, is that mm. seabirds carry the souls of dead sailors. Yeah. Uh, yeah, never kill a seabird. And they're just being fuckers throughout this film. <laughs> goes in no end of... Yeah, Greg brushes it off as, oh, they think we're a fishing... They think we're a fishing boat. They're going to be disappointed. Mm-hmm. But they're not, because there's going to be plenty of carrion for them to, <laughs> to dine on between... Plenty of Sally, yeah. yeah d- between the, all the dead Sallys, between the downies being thrown into the water. Mm-hmm. And poor old Victor, I'm going to keep coming back to him. Oh, he, gets, he gets the real shit end of the stake, old Victor. Yeah, he's just young Victor, yeah. you know. <laughs> young Victor, yeah. He's supposed to be yeah. like 18, well. which I believe, you know. Still baby face mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Liam Hemsworth with his crew cut. Um, yeah, I mean, wow. I mean, this was... You make him look very young. I looked this up, actually, and this was... I mean, this was a fairly big picture. I don't know what it took sort of budget-wise and that, but I remember it being... Oh, it was not very big Ooh. here. Wasn't very big in the U.S. Was it not? No. I remember it being, you know, relatively sort of popular, especially within sort of genre circles over here. Mm. But this was, you know, I think this was before Chris Hemsworth had made his big break as well. Yeah, two thousand nine was before. When was I think that was the same year as uh, the Star Trek reboot, where he played Captain Kirk for like. Captain Kirk's dad for like 10 minutes. No, that was later than that, wasn't it? Thor was 2011. Right. And I'm sure... Hang on. Star <laughs> Trek was about 2012, I think. Maybe 13. Uh, Star Trek with Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto, 2009. So... Oh, right, okay. I stand corrected. It was Thor 2010 then. But yeah, I mean... Obviously, is a it's it's a mainly Australian cast, isn't it? And mm-hmm. uh, most of these were in a popular soap called uh, Home and Away, which was uh, big over here. Did not know that. But then I was, you know, reading up Melissa. I thought, oh, this must have been one of Melissa George's first sort of roles, and she'd been about for quite a while. To be fair, I forgot she was in Dark City. I haven't seen that film for a long time. Oh gosh, was she? She must have been very young in that. Yeah, I haven't seen that in ages and ages and ages. I remember Jennifer Connelly being in it, but I don't remember Mm. Melissa George. But, yeah, I mean, this film in the years since 
definitely has become better known and appreciated in horror circles. In mm. those of us who, who enjoy horror films and are trying to find like the hidden gems. Yeah. I think it's becoming better known and more widespread appreciation. It's definitely that. I mean, I, you know, I mean, even, you know, I remember, like I say, I remember watching it when it first came out. But I remember very little about it. Like I, I do seem to remember it being a bit more slashery, mm-hmm. and certainly for a lot longer than it is. Right. And I didn't think that sort of twist in the time loops came till a lot later on in the in the story. But it was it was quite a pleasant surprise, really, to 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 see that that starts a lot earlier. Um, and I like I say, I remember the main point that it was her who was doing it, but. Yeah, I was really pleasantly surprised with the second watch. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, everything gets tied up. Every weird Mm. thing that happens gets explained. Yeah. By the end. Except for the bit Mm -hmm. that, you know, there's one body out on the road and (laughs) she's another one looking at at herself and, you know, where where the starting point is. I mean, do you know what the real weird thing about this film and about Eraserhead is? Mm Mm-mm. There's no X-Files connections. <laughs> there is no, well, no actor connections. I mean, the obvious one really um, with uh, Triangle is that season six episode of the X-Files uh, called Triangle, mm. which was set in the Bermuda Triangle. So I suppose that's the, the closest sort of connection we get to the X-Files. Very different. kind. Of, well, it deals with sort of time travel and, timey-wimey and loopy-loopy kind of <laughs> things where they're, they're bored a... Oh, Mulder goes back in... I can't remember it now. Mulder goes back in time on this... They board a cruise liner. Mulder goes back in time on the same cruise liner where it's overtaken by Nazis. <laughs> but Scully remains in the present, but they're crossing paths in the ship and it's all very split screen. So mm-hmm. it's, it's very great, really, really well-made episode and really fascinating one. Um, and all the characters from the X-Files, so like um, the smoking man is one of the Nazis and all other characters are, are sort of woven into the story. Mm-hmm. Um, really fascinating uh, episode, but that's the closest I could get other than the usual sort of, David Lynchy, Twin Peaksy kind of connections, but they're going a bit even stretchier than an episode with the same name as the film that you picked. <laughs> so I, I get the feeling that Christopher Smith was an X Files fan. You know, he obviously has a good um, a love for for horror, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of you know. I mean, there's some very obvious nods, like you know, like we mentioned The Shining and stuff, and then there's some, like you said, that maybe not quite so obvious um but it's someone who's obviously taking the the subject matter very seriously and wanting to do something that's paying homage but you know also is is very different because right. i can't think of a another film that 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 is like this to this degree anyway yeah yeah and i didn't realize so much the first time but it's i i think it's all or nearly all handheld camera work there's a lot of handheld Mm. following Jess through the ship. Yeah, absolutely. And that gives it a, an immediacy. And I mean, there are one or two sort of shaky 
yes. CGI moments <laughs> even to 2009. Yeah. But it doesn't it doesn't necessarily detract from from your enjoyment of the film. You don't you're not sat there thinking that's maybe more of a Right. Uh, having a, a podcast eye on it. And they do a really good job of the effects that count. Like the the overturned ship with the people waving for help on it doesn't look great. No. But then, I mean, you know, maybe that could even have been a conscious thing because it does feel very otherworldly. Those shots do feel a bit like, you know, you're not, you, you've got a skewed, you know, vision of, of, mm-hmm. of what's going on. But it's probably more down to the budget. But they do tremendous things with practical effects. You know, the through mm. the mirror shot is almost entirely practical. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with like a double and moving cabinets in in front of the mirror that they pull out of the way as she walks toward mm. the mirror opening. And they just used CG to put in like the smudges on the surface of the mirror. Yeah. So that it you can really see like where the surface is supposed to be that the camera passes through. But the, the Sally's <laughs> that looks mm. amazing. None of them yeah. look like doubles with masks on. No, They're, it really looks good. Although the, uh, whatever, whoever the body double was for this sort of, um, uh, Melissa George in the, um, overalls. A little too big. <laughs> a little, little too, little too manly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a little Michael Myersy. It was a little, a little too hulking. But I th- I think that could have also been on purpose to make it ambiguous at first as to who that yeah. figure is. Yeah, it would have been too obvious. It would have been obvious. Yeah, yeah. to Absolutely. make them so short. Uh, I mean, Melissa George oh, yeah. isn't tiny, but you know she's still mm. smaller than some of the people, even with the heels. Um. <laughs> But, yeah, so, I mean, this, is there anything that you wanted to bring up? I don't want to steamroll over you here if there's... No, I don't think so. I think I've covered most of my notes. I ended with poor Victor. Just, (laughs) yeah. Again, I keep going back to that, poor Victor. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And uh, bad haircut on the kid. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah, that's a that is bad. <laughs> that's a home job then, for sure. For <laughs> sure. But now what about you? Anything else you want to sort of delve into before we wrap up? No, I think I need to go back and look at some of Christopher Smith's more recent work to see if it's come up. I really love Triangle, so I went back and I watched Severance. Yes. Which is 2006. And that's a horror comedy that is mm-hmm. a lot of fun uh, if you like such things. That's the with Danny Dyer where they go on the team it's building. It's like a work retreat. retreat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember enjoying that. Before that, he did Creep, not the one with Mark Duplass, the one that takes place nope. in the underground. Which again, I think is quite underrated that. I don't think it got a lot of. Love it. And then after Triangle, he directed Black Death with Sean Bean, which I did not enjoy that one's. No, well, I thought that was good. I, it was all right, <laughs> but the, you know, the handheld was 
super shaky in that, even for me, like, I'm not one who complains about, you know, oh, sh- you know, shaky cam is terrible and I, I can't watch anything with it and it makes me ill or anything like that. No, I, I have no problem with, like, Cloverfield or uh, Blair Witch Project or anything like that, but Black Death was really bad. It was really severe um, camera shake to it. So I had a rough time with it. Also, it was a little nihilistic for me. <laughs> Maybe that's why I enjoyed it. So, as you might expect, things do not end well for Sean Bean. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> so, but he's directed several things since that I have not seen. I haven't seen Detour. I haven't seen Get Santa. I haven't seen uh, The Banishing or Consecration. No. Although I've heard decent things about Consecration. I'll have to check that out. Um, so... I will look into that. He is one of the directors where I tend to keep an eye out to see what he's up to because I like Triangle so much. Because I think he really, he he closes the loop on it. You know, he he picks up all the loose ends and Mm -hmm. does it in what I think is a really clever and assured way. Yeah. And I mean, you know, to, to maybe start sort of rounding up the two, um, or the two choices, you know, for me, in terms of, you know, I, I, I'm not. I couldn't say that that Triangle's a better film than A Razorhead. A Razorhead is a film that's that, that just stands, you know, way above that. It's a different category. It's a different category, yeah. yeah. And I think, although it's probably not as, you know, it doesn't delve into the mind fuckery quite as much as some of Lynch's later pictures. I think just the assault on your senses that this film has, whether it's visually, audibly, or just, you know, within your psyche, and how it sort of affects, certainly how it affected me, you know, again, on on the the third time that I'd watched it, it, um, I was thinking about it for the next couple of days. Um almost a week i suppose but i think it sticks with you it sticks with you yeah but i think triangle does as well you know i think again you know it's interestingly really i suppose the overall sort of you know the arc the arc of both the stories of both the films that we've picked so is you know about you know a parent you know yeah. being a parent um, and and how that affects you and choices that you make, I suppose. Yeah, which is quite interesting. And how you handle um, it, how you handle the handle it when it gets really challenging. Hmm. Uh, but it'd be interesting to see what the polls make of this one. Yeah, <laughs> I think you could. You know, you could say that uh, Razorhead is. Uh, a winner in the art film category and triangle is a winner in the sort of mass market film category. Mm. I don't know. Uh, I like them both. Yeah. <laughs> mm. I like them both in a different Definitely. way. Yeah. Definitely. So, is there anything uh, before we finish up, anything that you are up to at the moment or anything you'd like to push or promote or talk about? Oh, no. No, I'm afraid my 
quote-unquote free time uh, has been <laughs> sucked up with a lot of practical things of late, and I have not had time to update my letterbox and do my top 10 of 2023 list yet. I'm still I'm still catching up on some <laughs> of the films. Um, I haven't seen Poor Things yet. I did catch up on Saltburn recently. Ooh. Wow. <laughs> wow. Again, talk uh, about one that you cannot watch with your parents or children. No. Um, <laughs> when I do get my letterbox updated, I will put that out there. Um for people to see but until okay. then you're just gonna have to listen to back episodes of movie duel you know so yeah and you can also catch nicole on our monthly roundtables over on patreon for just one single dollar pound around about that um of which we should by now have released the second one of those i think for february by the time this goes out so you can listen to to some of Nicole's thoughts on that as well. Uh, but until next time, Nicole, uh, it just leaves me to say goodbye. And for Nicole to say... Don't talk to me about my world. <laughs> so.